0: Welcome to Across the Pond, a Christian commentary on the way of Jesus in the world today with the co-founders of Red Letter Christians, Dr. Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. Red Letter Christians gets its name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red, and we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. Some episodes of this podcast have been adapted from our radio show, Across the Pond, which airs on Sunday afternoons in the UK on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne
1: we're talking about faith and we're talking about the world that we live in i like how carl bart said We've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to hold the newspaper in the other, uh, lest our faith become just a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world that we live in. So we we know that this is not just about going to heaven when we die, but being attentive to the suffering, the struggle, uh, the redemption of all things here on earth. Uh, so I, I love having this show because it gives me a chance to talk with folks that I just love and respect so much. And you're in for a real special treat today because our guest is Robert P. Jones. He's the founding CEO of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and he is an incredible scholar, commentator on religion and politics. His books are fantastic. If you haven't read uh, The End of White Christian America or White Too Long, his articles are everywhere, including on the Red Letter Christians website. He's also on, on in the news all the time. Robert, I, I see you like um On TV, all the, you know, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, New York Times. So, anyway, welcome. Robbie, I get to call him Robbie now, Robbie Jones, uh, <laughs> Robert P. Jones, as we were just getting set up, you were talking about white discomfort. And I think it's mm. so important to unpack that a little bit because it's it's no coincidence, right, that this kind of racial awakening, this racial reckoning that's happening in the United States is, you know, coming on the back of the first black president, the changing demographics of America, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, things are shifting and changing and there are a lot of folks that have kind of been the power brokers or the the moral gatekeepers, the kind of white evangelicals that are they're they're uncomfortable. And and you kind of name that. That talk a little bit about white discomfort. Welcome, brother. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, I'm. I'm thanks for all the work that you're doing as well. Um, yeah, you know, so I've been thinking about this a lot. So I'm white. I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up as a Southern Baptist in Mississippi. I have a degree from a Southern Baptist college and a Southern Baptist seminary. Um, before I did a PhD at Emory in in religion, which is also in the South, uh, in Atlanta, right? So I've spent all of my formative years in the South. I've never seen anything quite like this. Um, I think you're right to name this context of, you know, this kind of big turning of the wheel that's happening in the country. And it is the case that we're white people and white Christians in particular are being called to account for this history. And it's making us very uncomfortable. Um, And I I wrote a piece uh, two weeks ago called The Sacred Work of White Discomfort. To really put this out there and to think it through for myself, because there's mm. a raft of bills in the United States, like legis- pieces of legislation that are out to define and set white discomfort as the measure of mm. what can and can't be taught to our kids in public schools, right? And, and not only that, they're defining it as discrimination right they're the le- they're making it a legal definition that if you make a white kid uncomfortable because of what you're teaching about American history that that can be prosecuted by the law as discrimination against that white kid so white yeah. <laughs> feelings, right, as the measure of um, what, what can be taught about American history. And I, I think you're right. Like, why is that happening now? It's exactly right, because we are being called to account. Um, uh, you know, we had the 1619 Project, uh, our first African-American president. And I think the big thing you named, and just to put some numbers around it, because what I do in my day job, is that the country is only recently moved from being a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer majority white Christian country. So as recently as when, you know, Barack Obama was running for president in 2008, the country was 54% white and Christian. And today it's 44%. Mm. And it just keeps dropping, you know, almost a percentage point a year. So so the face of the country literally has changed. And I think it's that and this sense of looking back at our history and realizing the white Christian church's complicity, right, in slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, and having to kind of wrestle with that as that all comes to life.
1: You know, you would think that, I mean, it, it, it's one thing to just be stunned by things like banned books that are, you know, banned yeah. in the schools or Texas right now trying to say that you can't even teach about slavery because it's going to make folks, white folks uncomfortable and these things. But it's another thing, you know, for those of us who are people of faith, like we, we have this tradition, right, of confession, yeah. right, that the truth sets us free. And I can remember, you know, I mean, I've, I've got some dude accountability groups and stuff. And it's always like really uncomfortable to face the truth of, you know, to be honest about some of our struggles and um, places that we fall short. And, but it ultimately makes us Better people. I mean, you, that's how you heal from it is by wreck, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you were talking a little bit about that, you know, the, the uh, Simone's quote. What was it that, uh, you know, the anxious, the confession part of this? Well,
2: I, I think that's right. I mean, the real question is like, where do we get this idea that to be Christian is to be comfortable? Like, I, I, it's it's heresy, right? I mean, I just only have any idea where in the world you would find that in the <laughs> Christian tradition. Um, like Nowhere, you know, that I mean, from, you know, I was saying like, you know, in our, in kind of the Southern. An evangelical tradition. There's these histories of revival meetings, and and the core event of, of a revival meeting was people, that, like they built it in. And there was a bench, literally a bench, set at the front of the tent, you know, and that when you got convicted of your sins, you would go sit on that bench and you would wrestle. With it, people would wail, they would cry, they would roll on the ground, uh, you know, because they were being convicted of their sins and and mm-hmm. coming to terms with it and wrestling with whether or not they would let go of it, right, and yeah. live and come to live uh, a new life in Christ. And that's not only extreme discomfort; it's it's public discomfort, right? Being willing <laughs> to kind of display and part of confession and repentance um, is coming to the even in the you know the biblical text, like you would uh, sackcloth and ashes, right? I mean, these were public yeah. displays of grief and repentance. Um, uh, and, and, you know, like I was saying, Simone Weil right, had this kind of, you know, image that is stuck in my mind ever since I read it, you know, that her being searched by God and kind of being under conviction and this idea that she described it as a butterfly being pinned like to a mounting while it was still alive. Like that's how mm. excruciating it felt, right, to her. Mm. Um, because we all want to hang on to these things that we shouldn't, and hang on to. And it's painful to let go of things. So it just seems so foreign. Um, but, you know, most of the people who are putting these bills forward are people who wear their Christianity, they're white people who wear their Christianity on their sleeve and don't seem to see the
1: deepest of contradiction. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, uh, y- you know, there's folks that have said this in different ways. But um, I remember uh, Eddie Glaude and and also Brian Stevenson has, has said similar things that that America is not unique in our sins, but we're unique in the mythology that we created to justify those sins and to mm. ignore the truth telling that needs to happen right we're, we've like buried that and ignored that and many countries around the world have you know really reckoned with and wrestled with their history you know massacring natives and in the slave trade and all these different things but we still have this kind of mythology of american exceptionalism right that that i yeah. think we see that comes from burying that history which is why we're so scared yeah. of it
2: right I think it's that, and I I think in the American context, too, it's historically closer to us than it is in many European countries, right? So I'll make this really personal. My grandfather in Macon, Georgia, was a deacon at East Macon Baptist Church. And one of his jobs in 1960, in the early 1960s, 62, 63, one of his jobs as a deacon, uh, an official job, not just a wink, wink, nod, nod, but his official role as a deacon, on Sunday morning, as, the, as people were filing into the service, was to be stationed outside to prevent any non-white people from entering the sanctuary. Mm. Like, that was his official job as a deacon. Um, that's something that the church had charged the deacons with doing, is keeping non-white people out of the sanctuary. Um, and part of that was because there was a movement to um, integrate churches, right, in the South. Yeah. And they were absolutely, um, you know, resisting it. Um, and, and so that's my grandfather. I, You know, I I knew him, um well, it's really close, uh, to us. And so I think, uh, part of the reason it's hard is because we've got to reckon with this stuff in our very near families. Um, you know, that yeah. are, and among people who are still alive, I mean, you know, it wasn't until the 1990s that there were any convictions delivered in Mississippi over civil rights murders. Uh, you know, um, so that's, uh, that's not that long ago. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah. I was in college during, during those years when, the, when those trials were happening in Mississippi. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's that, it's close to us. Um, I want to I read one quote from James Baldwin, if I could, right here. Do it, I, man, I, do I, it. I think yeah. this is, um, it's actually where I pulled the, the title, White Too Long, of my latest book from this quote, but it's right on top of what we're talking about. Um, and it was actually this indictment. Uh, by Baldwin, um, talking about white his fellow white Americans that I was one of the things that really pushed me to kind of write. Um, so here it is. Um, uh, it's it's oh by the way this is from a New York Times op ed that he wrote um, just a few months after the assassination of, of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, so he's in. It's a pretty dark moment for him as he's writing. Um, uh, uh, He says, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. They have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. Hmm they are unable to conceive that their version of reality that they want me to accept is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs and an intolerable violation of myself. I mean, that could be written today, right? I mean, you know, this was, this was
1: 1964. That was James Baldwin. Woo, man. So just in case some of you are are, are joining us, uh, tuning in late. uh, I'm this is Shane Claiborne. The show is across the pond and I'm, just in trend. I'm, I'm just loving this conversation that we're, uh, we're having with uh, Robert P Jones. So uh, he's written a whole bunch of stuff, but you might've read his recent book quite too long. And um, so let's jump right back into it, Robbie. So, you know, as I think, you know, I'm from Tennessee and grew up in East Tennessee, we had a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the, the pinnacle, founding members of the Ku Klux Klan in the capital until this year. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and So when you're talking about history, you know, but it, it, that's what so much, I mean, in almost every aspect of our culture right now, you see this war um, about how we remember history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about, it's the Confederate monuments. And it's kind of like, you know, the way you remember 9-11 is not by putting up a memorial to the, terrorists you know that were responsible for it but, but all the lives that were lost and you know you go to germany you see all kinds of memorials to the lives lost in the holocaust and yet we still have monuments and statues to the folks that were on the wrong side of that history the folks that were the victimizers rather than the victims right and so some of this is about um it's you know, Brian Stevenson says we we can't get our future right until we get our history right, and, yeah. and 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 literally that that confession is going to heal some of these wounds. Otherwise, you know, Dr. King's right that these are just like a, a, a untreated wound that's festering, and it's just going to continue to like become more and more infected if we don't treat it right.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the way I thought about it is um, I talked about this as uh, about white supremacy as being, you know, over the centuries uh, in America in the American context, uh, for sure. But not just the American context, obviously, but um, is it kind of becoming a part of the DNA of white Christianity um, in the country? Right. White supremacy is just sort of baked in. Um, And given that long history, like, you know, we we should not expect that this is going to be a comfortable or even, you know, it, we should expect it's going to be a painful process, you know, for for us to kind of extricate the gospel uh, from, you know, this uh, this this history and these other commitments, these really these prior commitments to white supremacy, right? We had a gospel that was compatible with white supremacy, yeah. Uh, and so we're gonna have to figure out how to, what do we do with that, and who, who does that? What does that mean about ourselves? And so I think that's the. The real challenge that, that's ahead of us. And, and that's why we're fighting over those monuments. That's why we're fighting over history and, and what we're teaching the next generation. Um, when those monuments were put there, what's what's interesting to me, I did a whole chapter on Confederate monuments yeah. and in Why Too Long. And I think one of the things I learned um is that most of those monuments weren't put there in the immediate years after the Civil War. Uh, most of those monuments were put up in the 1920s, uh, right. So it's like 60 years after the Civil War. Why were they put there? because the, the generation that fought the war was dying off and they wanted these monuments for the next generation uh, to stand as uh, to teach the next generation, their version of history, right. A kind of white supremacist version of history. And that's why they went up in the 1920s in the middle of the time where there were more lynchings in the country than any other decade. Uh, I mean, it was a overthrow of any of the reforms that happened after the civil war, a reassertion of white supremacy um, and, and Christianity was was there. Uh, most of those monuments were put up with very flowery, uh, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, preachers preaching, blessing the monuments, consecrating the monuments, you know, uh, having meet side meetings in churches uh, in and yeah. around the weekend that the monuments were, were being decorated are being um, uh, kind of unveiled. Uh, so it very much you know, in the middle of all that. And, and, you know, we're, we're, we're having, there's a lot that we're having done too.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, in some ways your writing and your research has uh, been um, ahead of, you know, Trump and even the the, the whole like uh, January 6th insurrection, like you were putting some lights on our radar, you know, a long long time ago. Um, But I think we, you know, as, as our country right now is uh, kind of, trying to, I mean, there's there's already a spin happening around January 6th, right? Mm. And uh, I, I put on social media um, that some of us are old enough to remember what happened on January 6th, you know, but we yeah. have this amazing white amnesia, right? This way of mm-hmm. forgetting or spinning what happened, you know? Um, but uh, in some ways, it's not really that surprising, I think, to you and many people, but it was a manifestation of stuff that was already under the surface. So, um, you, you know, talk a little bit about your work with PRI, Public Religion Research Institute, mm. and, and some of the indicators of, you know, Christian nationalism and this militant uh, yeah. form of uh, so-called patriotism that we see, you know, manifesting itself kind of in a unique way right now, right? Yeah, thanks for that.
2: So we've been tracking this at PRI um, a while. About, you can, uh, anyone who wants to check it, you know, check out our stuff, it's at PRI.org. Um, so you can see kind of all the past reports there. We have one up on January 6th um, uh, and, and violence in general. Um, a couple of things to say. Like, first one is that the, the big backdrop is uh, this bigger sense of white Christians believing that America is their country. Like, I think if you just boil it down, like, what's it about? It's about this belief that America was meant for white Christians of European descent. And that, that's, that's who God ordained the country to be for. Uh, that's who owns it. That's who the future, uh, that's whose future it should be. And I think it's letting go of that sense, right, of, of white Christian America, which is kind of the title of the previous book, End of White Christian America, that it's an identity problem. Uh, it, it's been this wrapped up of kind of Christian identity, white identity with what it means to be truly American, right, in this kind of hierarchical sense of you know, if you're white and you're Christian, you're up here. Um, uh, and historically, it was actually even narrower. Was if you're white and Protestant, you were up here, right? Catholics didn't make the cut historically. Uh, that's changed a little bit in the, in the last, you know, 50 years or so. Um, but, but I think that's at the core of it. Uh, but today, some of the disturbing things I think we find is um, how many people will just out and out tell us uh, that they could justify violence uh, today, right? So we... we um, uh, released a report last year, and we were asked people um, just a simple question. Um, you know, do you agree or disagree that things have gotten so far off track? Um, uh, it may be necessary for true American patriots to re- to resort to violence, to set things right. And we found that three in 10 Republicans uh, on a national public opinion survey would just outright tell us, yes, um, I believe that's right. And one in four, 26% of white evangelical Protestants um, uh, said, yes, we can imagine, uh, the need to pick up arms to kill or maim our fellow citizens. I mean, so that's where we are, right. That that can just be openly said, um, you know, on a big, on a national public opinion survey.
1: Ooh. All right. Time's flying by, but we got five minutes. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. s- slap two more on you. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I think is just, uh, incredible is, um, uh so, uh, you know, folks say that we're polarized, you know, that we know. Um, and we are. Um, uh, but y- y- this this recent study, I think, it was more in common was the name of it. It showed that 80 um, percent of Republicans think that Democrats are brainwashed and 80 percent of mm. Democrats think that Republicans are brainwashed. But then what was really s- disturbing is that it goes on to say that you know, an overwhelming number of those also think that the other group is evil and the world yeah. would be better off without them. And no. we are a heavily armed country. I mean, that's one of the places that we are unique. We've got yeah. more, more guns than people. You and I were on a call the other day, I think where uh, one of the other panelists said the second most armed country is Yemen and we're mm. twice, twice as armed as they are. Yeah. So, I mean, without being armed, like alarmist, but being realistic, like, where do you, where do you think this is going? Like, and what can we do yeah. to, you know, to, to, to be on the right side of history?
2: Yeah. Well, I got to say, so I know we don't have very, very many uh, minutes here, but um, I'm typically an optimistic person. I'm, I'm not a huge, fa- you know, I'm not susceptible, yeah. I think, to kind of panic or thinking in conspiratorial ways. Uh, I'm 53, almost 54 years old. Um, but I can say that I am worried in a way that I have never been in my life, uh, you know, of kind of observing politics, observing American religion, um, because the, the the biggest challenge we have, we are polarized, but it's not just pol- it's not just politics. The the problem is that we have these we've become polarized along partisan lines, for sure. But those partisan lines have aligned around religious and racial yeah. lines. And yeah. it, that's the danger, right, is that we have this kind of three-part rope of partisanship, racial identity, and, and religious identity, and, and it's it's asymmetrical. So uh, the Republican Party uh, today is two-thirds white and Christian, mm-hmm. right? So uh, – and the Democratic Party is only about one-third white and Christian. And yeah. so when you get a party that is uh, – and, and we've also got this kind of uh, two-party system, right, which tends to be binary – uh, and, and binaries tend to fight to the death uh, in yeah. many ways. Right. And so, like you said, um, we've asked questions like that too. And, and, and we, we have both parties saying the other party is a fundamental danger to the Republic. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, a democracy depends on people being willing to compromise on particular issues and you may win some, you may lose some, and you know, you're going to live to fight another day. Right. Um, yeah. So you, what do you do? You reorganize, you fundraise, you, you, Come back and give it another shot. Right. But yeah, we're run through with such apocalyptic thinking um, that I I think I fear that what's happened is that every every battle uh, is a fight to the death right now, because you're fighting not your fellow citizens who you disagree with, but your enemies who you need to defeat.
1: Yeah. It's so good. Oh man. Time's flying too. I, okay. The last question I want to ask you, uh, Robbie is, is so uh, zooming out just a little bit outside the United States, this is not unique to America. There's, 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 A racial fault line, I think that looks different, but I mean, you can look at the house of Lords in, in England, right. <laughs> or yeah. Britain. Or you can look at like, uh, I mean, watch the crown, you know, we see about colonization or even, you know, when uh, Justin Welby had, uh, 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 Michael Curry, you know, come over and do the Royal wedding. I mean, it ruffled some feathers, you know, so I think like, yeah. t- talk a little bit about, um, in the last minute or so, um, what what um we 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 can hope for, you know, in other parts of the world too? Maybe some takeaways from from the belly of the beast here.
2: Yeah, you know, I I mean one of the things I hope that we'll do is actually go back even a little further. One thing I've been trying to like read up on my own is um uh, this thing called the Doctor of Discovery. It's actually a fifteenth yeah. century um document, you know, came out of the Western Church. Uh, but but all of Western Europe and the kind of, you know, colonial sites all over the world were influenced by this idea, right? that uh, that it was Christianity and the state uh, kind of combined. Yeah. and so I, I think reckoning with that deeper root, right? With, yeah, which kind of is where the stuff in America comes from, but it kind of gives us uh, saying, but I think redemption comes. Yeah, from facing that and renouncing it and trying to find a way to say, you know, race is not kind of something that we need to be thinking about as part as constitutive of the church or constitutive of the state, um, right? But kind of embracing the fullness of uh, of God's creation um, as we find it. I'm so sad that we're out of
1: time, but we're going to do this again. This is uh, you've been listening to Robert P. Jones. Uh, Make sure you check out his stuff. He's got you know all of his best selling books, but you can also find a couple of his articles at Red Letter Christians. And uh, so grateful for you, brother thanks for all that you're doing and uh, let's do it again. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad to be in conversation.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about Red Letter Christians, please visit redletterchristians.org for resources, upcoming events, and to connect with other people who are passionate about Jesus and justice. You can follow Shane Cleborn and Red Letter Christians on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to support our work with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly sustainer of the movement, please visit our website and click on the red donate button. Thank you for tuning in.